Good morning. Today is Father's Day, and so just a happy Father's Day to all the dads out there and granddads. And, and it's great to give dads some uh, time for celebration as well as moms. Um, even though it was mom who carried her around in the womb for nine months and went through all the childbirth pains and nursed the kids and a lot of times stayed at home with the kids, dad's still a very important part of uh, the family for sure. In fact, I found an article online that gives 21 things dads do better than moms. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is a scholarly article from the uh, academic online journal, let me see here, popsugar.com. Anyway, on to the list. I just want to see if you agree or disagree with some of these. I don't know. Now, the writer is a mother, by the way, who wrote this, so it's not me. And not all of these things, of course, are, you know, dads are going to be better than moms. But first thing that, that she brought up was dads are better at getting the kids all riled up. <laughs> Which probably leads to number two, getting bumps and bruises on your kid. Third was reading. And then uh, fourth was playing rough, uh, and then fishing, hide-and-seek, digging in the sand, shoulder rides, adventures, sports, swimming, camping, creepy crawlies, which is a good thing that this isn't an uncle's, things uncles are better at, because that would not be me. Um, next is dishing out some tough love. Also, going off the planned schedule, goofing off. Amusement parks, breakfast, eating out, science experiments, probably especially those that explode. And then last was uh, taking vacations without kids. Dads are better at that. Um, uh, and I think, you know, a few of those are apt to some of our dads here that I know well. And uh, I'll tell you what I don't see on this list, though. I don't see that dads would take their kids to the emergency room if they fell and broke their arm more often than moms. Now, I mean, if you remember from Mother's Day, because I preached Mother's Day too, you might think, well, wait, Nick, didn't you tell a story already about falling and breaking your arm and your mom not taking you to the hospital? Yes, yes, I did. But it happened again. And it was my dad this time. So, uh, you know, mom was in Nevada or something, and, and I fell off of a rope swing and broke my other arm. Um, Dad didn't take me to the hospital that night. Made me sleep on it. Took me the next day. It's ridiculous. Now, in his, in his defense, he had a nurse look at it. And, and I know nurses. And they'll be like, fine. Suck it up. That's pretty much what happened. She, was, well, she thought that it didn't seem broken, but it was. So. Uh, I mean, twice. It happened to me twice. That's ridiculous. So I thought, you know what? I, I'm done. I'm, I'm done breaking my arms. And I've not broken anything since. So, yeah, that's, you know, I knew I know I wouldn't go to the hospital. I, I mean, I could take myself to the hospital now, but I think. All kidding aside, I do love my dad. And I love that we get to celebrate dads, even though I know for a few of us here, it, it might be a difficult time. Um, we've had folks who have lost their, their fathers over the last year. And while that pain is, is still fresh today, I'm sure, you know, I hope that we're able to take today and remember them and celebrate their impact on your life. 
Um, and, and some of you may not have even known your father, and I hope today that you'll find some comfort from the scriptures that we're going to look at. As we honor and celebrate fathers today, I, I want to look at a parable that Jesus told. Pretty well-known parable from Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. And it, in this story, it, Jesus tells us uh, a, about a father who relates to a son who has wandered off. Before we start reading, though, I want to give you some of the context surrounding the passage. At the beginning of chapter 15, we see that there are a whole lot of people who have gathered around Jesus to hear him teach, which happened throughout his ministry. But what's interesting is that Luke points out particularly that there were tax collectors and sinners who had gathered to hear Jesus. And that led to Pharisees who were also there, probably not necessarily to get a good word from Jesus, but they're typically there trying to catch him out on something that he's going to say. But the Pharisees were there, and they were muttering to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And immediately, Luke says that Jesus started to tell a parable, started to tell a story. He tells three, actually. And the first one was a story about what would happen if, if you had 100 sheep and you lost one. And if, if that had happened, what would you do? You'd leave the 99, and you'd go find that one lost sheep. And when it was found, you would call your friends, your neighbors, you would rejoice over finding the lost sheep and be, celebrate, be happy. And Jesus says in verse 7 of chapter 15, he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Then he moves to another story about a woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one on she searches for that coin all over her house, tears her house apart until she finds it. And when she does, she calls her friends and her neighbors to rejoice. And in verse 10, Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we come to the story that we're going to look at today in depth. Jesus gets right into it in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Now, Jesus is setting up the premise to the story really quickly here. There's a man, he's got two sons. The younger one wants his share of the estate. Now, there's a whole lot said in just that one little sentence. It might not look like a lot to us, but to the people who were there listening to Jesus' story, to us who are here reading this book, to the first century, sorry, to the first century readers of Luke's book, uh, it would have been very telling because the typical Jewish custom when it comes to an inheritance would be that the father would put together a will and following his death is when that would be divided out. And it would be divided um, differently than what we, not half and half, like the older son would have gotten a two-thirds, the younger son would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. The younger son's not disputing the size of his share here, but it's, it's the idea that he wanted his share now. It's the timing of it. And while that could happen, somebody could ask for their share early. It just wasn't really the norm for that culture. It wasn't what was usually expected. Because if you think about it, what what are we really saying here if, you're, if you do that? If you go up to your father and say, you know, I want my share. If you can't get it until after he dies, you're basically just saying that you wish your father was dead. I can imagine that would have broken the father's heart. But this was still all in his hands. He could have denied it. His son could have left without anything. But he doesn't. 
Instead, he goes ahead, he divides the property between them. And um, an interesting thing here, and there's a couple things in the language that as we were, as I was going through this, studying this this week, there were a couple things that really stood out. The first thing is that the word for property is, it's different than the word for estate that the son used in his request. Um, the word for property is bios, and you think like biology, you know, it's life, uh, life and the activities associated with it. The father here is, is not just giving away his properties, he's given, not just giving away his wealth, it's his life to his son. And it's here that Jesus continues with the son's story in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered all his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Going through this, it got me thinking about how many celebrities there are out there who kind of like make it big, make it get rich and things, and then you know something happens, they mismanage their funds, whatever, but they end up struggling and broke not long after that. Um, and of course, since I grew up in the 80s and 90s, MC Hammer was the first thing that came to mind, you know, you can't touch us. Um, and he declared bankruptcy in 1996 after being $13 million in debt. And he got this debt through a lavish lifestyle and... Uh, unpaid loans, and a really large payroll. And he was forced to sell his mansion, which had Italian marble floors, a bowling alley, a movie theater, a 17-car garage, and much more. And he only sold it for about $5 million. Now, I say that like $5 million is not a lot of money, but comparatively, it's not for what he needed and what he built that house for. In Jesus' parable, the younger son's basically the same way. He's telling his father that he wishes he was dead, and he wants his share of the money. His father gives it to him. So not long after this, he's off, he's traveling, he's going to what Jesus calls a distant country. And again, Jesus doesn't waste a whole lot of time here to get into the story. And he simply says that while he was in that country, the young man squandered his wealth in wild living. He lost it all. He was living that lavish lifestyle that probably would have felt pretty good at the time doing things that, you know, he really enjoyed doing, going on some adventures probably, definitely doing some inappropriate things, which we'll hear about later, but eventually the money runs out. And he can't sustain that lifestyle anymore. Really can't sustain any lifestyle anymore. And then, because when it rains, it pours, a famine hits that country. So now there's a shortage of food. With his money depleted and a famine... He's in need of help, and so he he finds work with somebody in the country who looks to be a a farmer of some sort. He had fields and and pigs, and and so this son's job was to go and to feed the pigs. And it's here again where the Jewish listeners would have been shocked because pigs are unclean animals, according to the Torah. Because they were unclean, Jewish people didn't have a lot to do with them. They wouldn't eat them. They didn't use them for sacrifices. They became ceremonially unclean themselves if they came into contact with an unclean animal. And then you had to go through a whole procedure to become ceremonially clean again. And then it got worse because he's really hungry. There's a famine going on. 
And he's even longing just to eat the food that the pigs were eating. You know you're kind of coming to the end of your rope at that point. And then that's where he got. But he comes up with a plan. In verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. When I was in college, I think I spent about two and a half, two and a half years at Ball State after my freshman year here at IU. I had switched to a journalism major and really wanted to get into photojournalism because I love photography. Um, but in order to get a journalism degree, you have to take certain classes that have absolutely nothing to do with photography. Or it seems like journalism, but it does. One of those was journalism law. I think I went to that class maybe four times that semester. If I remember right, that class only had like a midterm and a final for grades and everything. And you know, if you only have a midterm and final, that's a really, you know, you don't have a lot to, uh, to be able to pass that class. But I thought, in the infinite wisdom of my 21-year-old brain at the time, that I would be able to study and learn without needing to attend the class. I mean, it should be pretty easy, right? And I think it would have been had I studied and learned. I showed up for that final. I turned to question one and immediately just, just pit of my stomach. Everything went there. I felt sick because I knew I wasn't going to pass that test. And it turns out, I didn't. I failed that class. I failed another class, which I, I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> I just remember I had two Fs on that report card. It was that moment, that point where I had that moment of coming to my senses and figuring out that college wasn't something that was going to work out for me at that point in my life. I had to go home, though, and tell my parents, tell them that I thought it was best if I start to work full-time. Thankfully, my parents are very gracious. You ever had those kind of uh, come-to-your-senses moments where the way that you're living just wasn't going to work out? You had to change something up, or, or maybe worse, you had to go home and get help from your mom or dad because of your mistakes. That can be rough. Do you practice a little speech before you do it? I know I did. I had it ready to go. And that's what the son does here. Jesus starts this by saying, when he came to his senses, the, the Greek expression behind came to his senses is a translation of a Hebrew word that means in his heart. So he had all the logical stuff there, but there was something else that changed in him, in his heart. We're just thinking it more than just thinking it through. It's that change in his heart that drove him to action, that drove him home. And he's thinking to himself, you know, he's trying to, to figure it all out. And he says, you know what, my father has got all these hired servants. He feeds them, he's, and they're pretty well taken care of. They've got an abundance of food. And so he comes up with this little speech, and this is how I hear it in my head. It's like, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you. Probably doesn't sound like that, but he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
So he's got the plan. Plan sounds good. He's going to go home. He's going to repent before his father. And then he's just going to simply ask to be one of the servants. And he knows that his father would at least take care of him. There's something about his father that he knows that he would take care of him in that way. Again, something interesting with the, the Greek here. In verse 12, when he's asking for his money, he just simply says, Father. But in this verse, you look in the NIV, you look in any translation, that's what you're going to see as Father. But there's actually a possessive that's on there, so it's actually my Father. No translation seems to have that. I just found it when I was studying. And I didn't find it. Another book found it, but... But I've, I thought that's so interesting that there was there's a change. It's, it's not just the formal father. It's my father. But then the story shifts. Basically goes to the perspective of the father. In verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I'm sure there are some who have longed for the day when they would see their sons and daughters again after a long time apart. And I think that's especially true if, you know, maybe your last words were something that you might have regretted saying or something like in this story where the hurt runs very deep. The son's traveling home and the father sees him. Jesus says from a long way off. Was he looking for him? We don't know. Jesus doesn't really specify that. But we know that he did see him from a long way off, but he knew it was his son. And he immediately had compassion for him. I mean, dad's here today. Can you imagine the emotions that would have been going through you? The son that you thought was dead? Like how many different things? How many, how many different emotions must have been going through him? But the one that stands out is compassion. The one that overrides all of them is compassion. He saw him from a long way off and was filled with compassion. And then he runs to meet his son. I've read in a couple different places. I'm sure you've heard some of this too if you've heard sermons on this, but that was totally an unusual thing in that culture. Older men did not run. It was not dignified. But honestly, what was going to stop that father from getting to his boy? He runs to him. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. And again, can you imagine the scene? The son probably didn't look great. He's hungry, probably lost weight, a little gaunt with the famine, the hunger, the travel. But the father running to his boy, embracing him, I'm sure both in tears. And that's when the son starts his prepared speech. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Son had his speech all prepared, gets it started, and he doesn't even get through it because his father interrupts him. He says, bring the best robe, put a, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, prepare a feast, let's celebrate. 
And he was put into a robe, not just any robe, but it was the best robe, the one that was reserved for notable guests. They put a ring on his finger, but the ring was symbolic of him being put back into the family, restored to the family. The sandals, servants wouldn't wear sandals because they were a luxury. But this son is not a servant of his father like he was expecting, like he was hoping. But he's a son. And then the calf being eaten, it would have meant that it was a very important celebration as his meat was saved for special occasions. The father shows his love for his son returning home. He was dead, now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. But what don't you see here? You don't see the stern talking to. You don't see the father acting indifferent. You don't see the life lesson. You don't hear him say, I told you so. You just see grace. The love of his father. And so they celebrate. But there is one other person in this story. Somebody that wasn't too happy with this return. And that's the older brother. Verse 25 says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, his, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I always love hanging around siblings who, you know, have a little bit of an age gap between them. My, my nephews are the best uh, example of this, I think. Maybe my niece, too, but it's definitely more with the nephews. But, you know, when you're growing up and you always hear about how unfair things are, you know, it's, it's not fair. You know, like, Peyton got to do this. Why can't I? You know, you don't treat Brady that way. It's not fair. Which is a loving uncle, I would usually respond with grace and wisdom and say, life's not fair, kid, get over it. <laughs> I think that helped the situation. <laughs> the older son of this man is coming back from working in the field, and he's just like, why is there a party going on at my house? And he asks one of the servants who tells him the story of his brother coming home, and can you just see it when he hears this? Just be like, unbelievable. He's mad. He's not going to go in. Yet again, who is it that comes out to him? It's his father. His son says something very true. He's like, look, I've been here. I've never left you. I stayed the course, but what did I get? Not even a young goat to have a party with my friends, but my brother who's been gone doing these unimaginable things. He comes home and gets the fattened calf. It's not fair. You see the father with grace and love even to this brother. He says, my son, of course you've been with me. 
You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. Because your brother was dead. But now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. That's where Jesus ends that parable. You know, throughout the Bible, there's a lot of names for God in the Bible. We've talked about some of these, but I just wanted to list some of the names that are used for God. A lot of times used to describe him, and and it's not an encompassing list. I think even if you listed all of the ones we had in the Bible, it's not an encompassing list of who God is, because we will never know. Some of these translated English are things like God Almighty, God Most High the eternal God, the ancient of days, the mighty one, the living God, the Lord provides. And then there's his personal name, which most scholars believe is pronounced Yahweh. And the the reason that I say that is because in Hebrew, there's no uh, vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, They were later editions, but it's just Y-H-W-H. Most Bibles, in your translations, you'll see it as the Lord, if it's in all caps, like big L, smaller but still caps on the uh, ORD. The reason that they did that is because there's a Hebrew tradition to use the word Adonai, which is Lord, so as not to break one of the Ten Commandments, which says, you will not misuse the name of Yahweh. I mean, he's a personal God, which is something to remember. He has a name. There's more uh, names and descriptions and things like that in the Bible to tell us, that show us the amazing nature of God and how he revealed himself to us. But there's one other name that we call God. And it was one that Jesus told us. When he was asked about prayer, he gave us a far more personal way to address the Lord the Ancient of Days, the Mighty One, the Living God, Yahweh. He says in Matthew 6, 9, this then is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Our Father. Our Heavenly Father. As Jesus told this parable that we now call the prodigal son, the three people in it were representative The younger son was representative of the sinners and the tax collectors, those who had gathered to hear Jesus. The older son represented the Pharisees who were angry that, you know, they'd been there the whole time. They'd been doing what they were supposed to be doing, and now all of a sudden the party goes with the sinners. And then the father is, well, our father. He is our heavenly father. And today, he is still looking and waiting for you to come home. When you do, he's going to see you coming from a distance. He's going to run to you. He's going to be filled with compassion for you, regardless of what you've done. He will embrace you and restore you. And if sometimes you feel like you're the older brother... You know that you've been here for, you've been here the whole time. You've been living the Christian life well. Don't get discouraged with that either because 
He loves you all the same. You see it. Like there is the grace and the love there. And we know how he showed that love for us. It's because he sent his son, Jesus. God in flesh. God with us. He died in our place on the cross. Fathers, I hope you can find encouragement in this passage, seeing the Father, seeing our Father in action, seeing the grace, the love that he shows his children, and and trying to emulate that. And we should strive to be like the Father, but don't feel too bad if you're not quite there, because he's God, and he's going to get it right all the time. And you're not, and that's okay. But as we continue to grow, as we continue to live the Christian life, as he grows his spirit in us, as we allow him to, we're going to continue to look more like him. We're going to look like our father. We're going to look like God. So as we leave here today, we want to honor, we want to celebrate you fathers and stepfathers, foster fathers, grandfathers. We celebrate those who are with us, but we also remember and honor those who have gone home to be with the Lord. We also think about those who may have lost children as well as those who may be longing to be a dad. But finally, we give honor and we celebrate our Heavenly Father. Just like we try and do every Sunday, even in our own imperfect way. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father. (laughs) I know I said this first service, but I just want to say Happy Father's Day. It's a day where we celebrate our earthly fathers, but we celebrate you as well, Lord. You are just amazing and holy and just, just filled with compassion and grace for your children. I thank you for the story that Jesus told us of these three men, the two sons and their father. Show that, you know, no matter how far we go, you are still waiting for us to come home. And I pray that if there are any here today who who have yet to do that, that they would, that you would help them come to their senses and go home to you where you're waiting to embrace them and to restore them as sons and daughters. Thank you so much, Lord. We pray for the fathers who are here, for the fathers watching at home, those who aren't able to get here today. We just pray your blessing over them. We thank you. We thank you that you are an amazing father. You sent your son. You came to die for us. But you didn't stay there. You came back, conquered death, so that we can spend all of eternity with you starting now. Thank you so much, Lord. It is in Jesus' name that I pray this to you. Amen.